I would ask you if you uh, have your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. There's also Bibles in the pew rack right in front of you. If you don't have yours. We're continuing to study in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 10. We're going to be reading uh, verses 26 through 31. Because it is God's word, I would ask you, if you're able, please to stand together with me as we read. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated, uh, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant uh, that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You, you may be seated. Let me remind you what we find in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, we're not sure who he was, but uh, we do know that he was writing to the first century uh, Jewish Christians. And uh, some of them had begun to undergo some persecution. Some of them had lost property. Uh, some of them had uh, suffered maybe in some other ways. And uh, they were looking at it and thinking, it's probably about to get worse, and it probably was. And so some of them were thinking in the midst of this persecution that was going on with them, they were, they were thinking along these lines, um, maybe, maybe this is God's punishment on me for leaving Judaism, um, and maybe I should turn from this whole Christian thing and go back to the Judaism that uh, I grew up with. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them and saying, no, that's completely the wrong idea. In the midst of all your trials and all your troubles and all your difficulties, in the midst of the persecution that's coming on you, I want you to know that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Because you see, he's shown throughout the book, Christ is superior to anything you might want to turn back to. He says Christ is a superior revelation to the Old Testament because he's a fulfillment of that Old Testament revelation. He's a final revelation. He's superior to that revelation. He's superior to any angels that you might think you want to see to uh, give you information of this or that. He is superior to, um, to uh, uh, Moses uh, as the mediator of a superior covenant. It's the, the new covenant, the fulfillment of the old covenant. He is a superior high priest to any of the Old Testament high priests. He is, he is uh, ministering in a superior uh, tabernacle 
Uh, it is the true one. It's the one that is the heavenly one. Uh, the one in which the ones here on earth were simply a, a shadow of or a model of. They weren't the real the tabernacle. They were for, set up in a certain way to make us realize that the, the heavenly one is it, what it's like. And that's where Jesus is ministering in that heavenly tabernacle. Jesus comes not only as the high priest who ministers in that heavenly tabernacle... He comes to bring sacrifice for sins. And his bringing the sacrifice for sins is far superior to any of the Old Testament sacrifices that there could be. Those Old Testament sacrifices had to take place over and over again. Every year on the Day of Atonement, those things had to happen. But Jesus came and he offered sacrifice once and for all and it was done. And while in the in the uh, uh, earthly tabernacle, there was no uh, seed in the most holy of places where that sacrifice is brought because the priest was continuously working. We're told that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God in the most holy place. He's seated because his, his work is completed. There's no more work that's necessary to be done. He's so far superior to that. But not only was he the high priest who brought the sacrifice, he himself was the sacrifice. And those Old Testament sacrifices of blood and bulls and goats, that was one thing, but they could never actually take away sin because sin was man's problem. And sin had to be paid for by man. And so Christ comes and he takes on human flesh and he gives his life and sheds human blood to pay for human sin. And now he has ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father with all of this stuff completed, so far superior to anything that they might turn back to. All that stuff that looked forward to him is fulfilled now. Why would you go back to looking forward once again? Saying that's exactly the wrong thing to do. So in the midst of all of your suffering and trials, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's told them that several times. He's going to tell them that again when we get to chapter 12. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. They were starting to feel persecution in those days. In our day in America, we don't have just a whole lot of persecution yet. There are some places where it's beginning to show up. It shows up in public schools. If, you, if a student wants to go there with a Bible in so many places in the public schools, you can't do that. You can't have a, a prayer meeting in public schools, and uh, uh, those sorts of things are wrong. And we see in other public settings the persecution beginning to fall on Christians. You can't have a Christmas time nativity scene in a public setting in many places. And we see in our government, in many places, in the government where uh, certain politicians desiring to get the name of God completely out of it. So any oath you make take of office, you can't say, so help me God. You just take the oath and don't know who you're giving that oath to, maybe just to one another. We see it a little bit in our country. We see it when uh, people, because of their convictions and what the Bible says, are not able to do certain things. They, they uh, get brought up before courts and uh, um, maybe lose their business, uh, those sorts of things. But we look around the world today, 
And within the last several months, we've seen some of the most uh, uh, trying and difficult times uh, of Christians in the history of the Christian church, where in certain places in our world today, uh, hundreds and even thousands of Christians are being murdered. Churches are being burned. We saw most recently the, the everyone was, was shocked with the burning of the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. But uh, if, if there was some information put out that Notre Dame's not the only church that's been burned there in France and the surrounding areas. It's been like 400 in the last year or so. We've seen persecution going on. And so we look at it and we think of the persecution and we can see the pictures of uh, Christians being held with a, a knife at their throat saying, you know, turn from Christianity, turn to Islam or we will kill you. And we think, what an awful thing. We think, what could be worse? What, what kind of worst thing could ever happen to us? We're moved to ask, what would I do in such a situation? What would I do in such a situation if all that I had was about to be taken from me because I am a Christian? What would I do in such a situation if my family was going to be harmed because of my stance for Christ? What would I do in such a situation where I was told, if you don't turn from him, if you don't say Caesar is Lord, you will die? What would I do? And we think it's an awful thing to fall into the hands of such evil men. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there is something worse than falling into hands of such evil men who would do you incredible harm because you're a Christian. And I think we see it in our passage this morning. What is that thing that would be worse? Well, I think it is for any reason turning away from Christ. For any reason, turning away from the salvation that God has provided for us, that would be far worse than falling into the hands of these evil men. This passage goes on and, and we see in the last verse that we read here, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you have known the salvation and the grace that he's provided in Christ Jesus, and you've turned away from it and say, I'm going to forsake all that, that is a far worse thing than falling into the hands of any evil men. And so this morning I want us to look at this severe warning that the apostle gives to the early church that he gives to us as well uh, in this passage. And it doesn't have to be simply because of persecution. Uh, I think we see in, in, in America, um, it's probably because of all the wealth that we have that we so often turn away from the living God. We see the, the wealth that is promised for us in Christ Jesus and we say, I've got everything I could ever want anyway. Why do I need him? And so we turn away. Well, I want us to look this morning. Hopefully you've got an outline in your bulletin there. Um, that uh, Three main points here. I want us to first of all look at the nature of the sin that is, that is talked about here. It's called apostasy. And we see it in uh, verses 26 and 27. 
If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. What exactly does this mean? Can this mean that if I have ever sinned intentionally after I've become a Christian, that I've lost my salvation? Does it mean that whether I know, hey, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway? Have any of you ever done that? After you become a Christian? Does that mean you lost your salvation? Uh, there were those in, in Christian history who uh, taught such a thing. F.F. Uh, Bruce, Bruce says of Hermes when he writes uh, the, the Shepherd, he said, according to him, baptism in Christ's name wipes out all previous sins. The baptized person who kept the law of Christ consistently need not fear the last judgment. But anyone who sinned once after baptism could, after due repentance, receive forgiveness once more and be assured of ultimate salvation if he did not fall again. This was the reason that uh, at one point um, during the, the Christian church in the thinking on baptism, they wanted to wait until the very last minute and they would come and baptize you on your deathbed hoping that you wouldn't revive at that point uh, because if you did, you might, you might accidentally sin again and, uh, and, and then you would, you would lose all that, that forgiveness. Well... Um, I don't think that that's what the author of Hebrews is intending for us to understand here. We'll get to some of that in a little bit. But others in, in more recent times have devised a theology of perfectionism in which they redefine sin. And I think you have to do that if you say, uh, I have reached perfection. Uh, Paul says at the end of his life, I haven't quite reached it yet, but I'm still striving forward. Um, I fought the good faith, you know, all these things, but I didn't quite reach it yet. Still, there are those in more recent times who have said you can. It's called perfectionism, in which they redefine sin. Uh, to quote one of them, he said, you may call it sin. I prefer to call it transgression of the law. <laughs> I'm not sure how that helps, you know. Uh, what is sin if not a transgression of the law, right? Um, but to that author, it seemed to make sense that sins, sins were somewhat less, uh, or, or sin was somewhat more of an offense to God than transgression of his law. Um, so what does it mean that any deliberate sin on our part will cause us to lose our salvation, or does it mean that? I don't think it does. If, if we read uh, from 1 John Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8 through 2, verse 1, we read, If we claim to be without sin, we're Christians claiming to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John is saying, you know, I'm not giving you license to sin, but if you do, 
You need, you need to understand that your forgiveness doesn't come by your goodness, but by the goodness of Christ, who is the righteous one, whose work was on your behalf, and whose work has been credited to your account. Even the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 7, he, he says, the law is a good thing, and I agree that what it, it says is good and that I should be doing but you know those good things that I know I should be doing? It seems that I don't do them. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ our Lord. It's only in Him. The Geneva Study Bible says Christians who claim to be sinless are self-deluded. <laughs> if you struggle uh, with sin, it just means that you're not in glory yet. You know? I want us to look at this sin that's, uh, that's talked about here. Uh, I want us to notice three characteristics of it uh, as we see exactly what the author uh, is talking about, the nature of this sin that he's talking about. And uh, three characteristics. First of all, it's, it is deliberate. Um, he says if we deliberately uh, keep on sinning. Uh, and uh, someone has said it is a, de a deliberate turning away from faith in Christ in association with the church. Um, it is deliberate. It's something that has to be planned. Something you say, I am going to do this. Uh, the Geneva Study Bible again says on this, it's a abandoning one's confession altogether. Saying, I know what I'm doing here. It is deliberate. I'm going to do it. And secondly, it is Cognitive. It has to do with knowledge. We, we, we have received the knowledge of the truth. We know the truth that salvation is found in Christ Jesus and Him alone and that we must trust in Him and Him alone and that that is the only hope that we have for salvation. Uh, John Calvin said this cannot happen to anyone who has not already been enlightened. Going, going uh, to the church and you've heard the fact that uh, salvation is found in Jesus Christ, you've heard him say from, uh, in, in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And you've understood that. You're aware of the superiority of Christ, as the author of Hebrews has been telling them through these ten chapters. Uh, and all these things, he's superior. So it's knowing these things. You, it has to be delivered. It has to be knowing and according to the knowledge of the truth. And then finally we see in verse 29, it is a knowing these things and rejecting it. Uh, anyone who, in verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of God, uh, the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, who has in, insulted the spirit of grace, trampled underfoot, trampled underfoot the Son of God. It's as though you say, I know, I know who he was. It makes no difference. Step on him as if I would step on an insect. Or treated as an unholy thing, the, the blood of the covenant. Insulted the grace of the Spirit. 
or the spirit of grace. Uh, Jesus calls the, this the sin against the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. The sin we're talking about in this passage is the sin of apostasy. It is a, here's the definition, a deliberate, conscious rejection of the provision that God has made for sin through Christ Jesus. A deliberate, conscious rejection of the provision that God has made through for sin through Christ Jesus. Again, quote John Calvin, the apostate, uh, excuse me, the apostle describes as sinners not those who fall in any uh, kind of way, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. He's not dealing here with this or that kind of sin, but is exposing by name those who withdraw themselves of their own accord from the fellowship of the church. Particularly in light of what uh, has been written in this letter, I believe our, our uh, author is thinking of those who would be spurning the work of Christ and, and turning back to the Levitical sacrifices. I think we maybe see it in the New Testament where Demas, uh, one of uh, Paul's closest associates, uh, sees the world and the... And the uh, the appeal of the world and he turns and he leaves Paul and loves the world more than he loves Christ and he turns away, that sort of thing. Um, if we should uh, spurn the work, uh, even spurning the work by suggesting that we must change before God will accept us. I think some people may say that. We must understand that God accepts us not based on our works, but on the work of Christ. We bring nothing except the work of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. As we sang earlier on that Augustus Top Lady, a song, Rock of Ages. If we turn in any way, deliberately turning uh, from the knowledge of the truth and we're rejecting it, that's what is the nature of this sin. Secondly, we notice in the nature of the sin, the consequences of this sin. Verse 26 says, no sacrifice for sin is left. <laughs> the, Le the Levitical system with all those sacrifices are of no account. Um, now that the real sacrifices come, those sacrifices don't pay for sins. If you turn away from Christ, there's no other means of dealing with sin. No other name given among men whereby we must be saved, right? If you turn away from Christ, there's no other means of dealing with sin. And so he says there's no sacrifice left for sin anywhere else if you turn from him. So there's no sacrifice for sins left, but verse 27 says there is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The New American Standard says a terrifying expectation. In our day, we tend to think of God as more of a heavenly grandfather who is easily manipulated by us. This is not the view that we have in Scripture. God is a consuming fire, and all who are confronted with him find out this truth. Again, we live in a day and age when uh, God is, 
is we'll just move heaven and earth for whatever desire and want we have, we're told by certain television preachers. But one of the most famous preachers on this continent who was here actually before we came, became a nation, his name was Jonathan Edwards. And he spoke a different view of God than so many have today. And probably the most well-known sermon that's ever been written on the American continent entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right? Talking about the black clouds of God's wrath are, are filling and overhead. And he talks about God having his bow of wrath. It is bent with an arrow on the string and it's aimed at you. And Jonathan Edwards, who read from a manuscript in monotone voice, didn't try to illustrate with humorous um, uh, antidotes, as I sometimes try to do. And so he's reading his manuscript in monotone voice, the sinners, of an angry, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and the people begin to cry out as the Spirit moves on them with the understanding of God is a just and a righteous God who will not accept uh, us in our sin. And we're told that they were grabbing hold of the pews in front of them, their knuckles turning white, hoping that the floors didn't open up and they slide into hell as a result of what he was preaching to them. They understood a fearful expectation of falling into the hands of a just and a righteous God, an angry God, a God who's angry with sin. So there's uh, no sacrifice left as a consequence of sin, only a fearful expectation. And verses 27, 30, and 31 say there's judgment and a, and a raging fire. Uh, look with me again in verse 30. Uh, for, uh, for we know him who said it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. <laughs> to fall into the hands of a just God. Having rejected his provision is certainly a dreadful thing. And the author of Hebrews is saying if you turn away from the superiority of Christ and the provision that he's given for you, this is all that awaits you. So thirdly, we come in this passage uh, to ask who commits this sin? Who commits this sin? Can it be committed? Uh, it, it can only be committed by those who have received knowledge of the truth. We've already talked about that. Those who have associated themselves with the church. Those who pretend to be Christians but really have no love for Christ and think disparagingly of his work. Simon Kistemaker said the unpardonable sin cannot be attributed to a person who doubts his or her salvation, only to the person who de demonstrates an open and deliberate hatred towards God, divine revelation, and Christ's accomplished work of salvation uh, has committed th that sin. Not those who truly have been saved by the work of Christ's superior sacrifice. In John chapter 10, Jesus uh, uh, says, I'm the good shepherd. Remember? That's the passage where he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name and they follow him. And then he goes on to say, 
and all mine I have in the palm of my hand, and no one can snatch them out. And my Father, who is stronger than all, has them in the palm of his hand, and no one can take them out of his hand. It's not the true sheep. True sheep can't be plucked out of our Lord Jesus' hand. That causes the Apostle Paul to write in uh, Philippians that he's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, continually fixed on Jesus, this is not a sin that we do. We talk about perseverance of the saints. What does this do for perseverance of the saints? It upholds it. It completely upholds it. You see, those to whom Christ began the good work, those to whom Christ has in the palm of his hand, they do persevere to the end because Christ keeps them persevering to the end. What keeps us from falling into the sin of apostasy? It's only the saving power of our Lord. According to His good pleasure, He has graciously brought us into His family through the accomplished work of Christ. We're to grow in this grace that He has provided uh, that's the reason the author of Hebrews is reminding us here about you know any any sort of uh, turning away from him or, or from his church. It's a bad thing. Uh, the Lord keeps us by the means of grace that He's provided for us. The means of grace, prayer, and word, and sacraments, and by partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning, uh, you are being reminded that your dependence on the work of Christ for your standing with God, not you depending on your own work, but as we receive this means of grace, we are, we are being reminded of the work of Christ. He says, do this in remembrance of me. We're reminded that it is because of his work that he keeps us firmly to the end. Well, let's pray together.